What's up, folks? This is Victor Cruz with the Victor Cruz Acting Studio Podcast. That's right, folks. And today my guest is a very good friend who I've known for the past 20 years now. And uh, she is doing some amazing work. Please welcome to the show, psychotherapist Amy Edelstein. That's right. You get an applause. You get an applause. You know why you get an applause? Because when I first met you, you were a performer. I mean, to me, I I still look at you as a performer because you have an amazing voice. I mean, the last time, what was it? I think it was at your wedding when you sang that song to your husband. Wow. So beautiful. I mean, you have an amazing voice. Well, it didn't pay the bill, so I went a different direction. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Sometimes... You know, sometimes people luck out and they they hit it right away. And sometimes, listen, it is what it is. But as long as you're happy doing it, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the financials. But I think you're so, so talented. Oh, my God. So 20 years, Amy. It's been 20 years. Did you even did you think that that was the case? No. And it makes me feel incredibly old. No, I feel incredibly young. Um, I think back when I first met you, which was in Boston, you guys, you and my wife went to Boston Conservatory together. And during that time, one of those times that I went to visit you was around Halloween. And we went to Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, we had a lot of fun. We sure did. (laughs) I mean, going to Salem is like something that you kind of, you know, if you're obviously a Halloween fan, if you actually celebrate Halloween, like the idea of going to Salem is actually kind of cool. Um, A lot of cool costumes out there. And I remember, I don't know if we had been drinking that no, day. I, I don't think so. I don't think so, no. We were good, responsible kids. <laughs> but I just remember the line, did you burp in my mouth? <laughs> well, we, I remember doing an interview with some strangers just like this, <laughs> trying That's to right. locate the Salem witch. Well, you know, you, you are not a stranger to cameras because we, we have a camera in the studio, for those of you that are listening, because we also film these and you can find them on YouTube at the Victor Cruz acting studio podcast if you're interested in watching who these folks look like but amy is no stranger to the camera because she i mean you used to film everything that is definitely true you filmed everything and i remember you had tapes and tapes and eventually they became dvds and now they're probably in an external hard drive somewhere they sure are stored away (laughs) but anytime we used to come to your house to visit it was like there were so many dvds or tapes and we could always look back you know when we did some of the fun stuff that we did and that was very cool and you you collect these things and you preserve them i mean you still had a nintendo i think when i first met you and i was like wow and it works yes that was you know a lot of fun nighttime activity that's right was between that and boy meets world mm. which is is it still your obsession no no, no not for a long time but <laughs> i that does bring back a lot of good when, memories when did you quit boy meets world <sighs> Was it when they created uh, that other show? Remember, there was like the spinoff with the parents. Girl Meets World. Girl Meets World. That's it. <laughs> Very different title. Very yes. far from the original title. But when did you quit Boy Meets World? Because I know that Man. was an obsession of yours. Maybe age 22. Yeah. 23. Wow. Well, that was pretty shortly after yeah. I saw you watching. Your room was always playing an episode of Boy Meets World. <laughs> <laughs> like you were not in the room, but it was just just playing. It was just there. Yeah. It was just there. It was it was comforting. It was, it was comforting, comforting in college. Yeah. Yeah. You're like I if you know if I have no friends, I have boy meets world. Mm-hmm. But you you have plenty of friends. Yep. That wasn't the case. That's true too. <laughs> but they all needed to watch boy meets world at some point. Anyway. 
So when when did you get into the social work? When did that change? Because uh, like I said, I met you as a performer. When did you become interested in in social work? When did you shift into that that area of um, the work you do now? I think I always really enjoyed helping people. Um, and I think, you know, in college, I became involved in like Take Back the Night events mm-hmm. to really promote awareness around sexual violence um, prevention and Um, you know, just being touched by personal uh, struggles in my life of family members with mental health issues, Mm -hmm. um, actors that I saw struggling with disordered eating and body image issues, and, you know, just people that experience trauma because it's so prevalent. Um, Mm. So I think, you know, sometime after college, I realized that I didn't really want to be a professional actor, and I love it and I still consider myself an actor and singer but um but really my passion was sort of helping people and figuring out how I can do that um in the right way for me and I went into social work gotcha did you have to go to um, a special school for that you know what was that program like and in the end did you feel like you benefited from that program entering the world of social work yeah, I think, you know, I then got uh, my bachelor's in psychology um, after Boston Conservatory, and then I went on to get my master's in social work from Fordham, and then a post-master's certification from NYU after that. Um, and I think, you know, what I love about social work is that it's so broad, mm-hmm. and, you know, you sort of learn what you maybe don't want to do and, and, and parts of social work that you do want to do, and it's just filled with, you know, social justice opportunities And then also really working to help change people on sort of more of the individual level. Got you. For you and your experience, what are some of the big misconceptions about social work or social workers that you find? Well, I think that, you know, back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, social work was really sort of identified as like the people that came to your house to take your kids away, right? Right. Um, Very scary thing. They were important in sort of the field back then, but it was scary. So I think, you know, many, many years later, it has morphed into such a different profession. Um, So many more opportunities, but also, you know, sort of the way psychologists used to, you know, work with clients in a clinical setting one-on-one, clinical social works now, clinical social workers now do the same thing. So um, different discipline, some different credentials, but essentially, um, you know, being able to provide psychotherapy in, in, you know, in an a practice setting, um, and also in many different settings, in hospitals and clinics and agency work. Um, all of those are really close to my heart. I've done a lot of different types of social work in my 15 years. Wow, 15 years you've dedicated yourself to helping people. That's that's really, really amazing because I'm sure that it's not just, you know, maybe some people think that it's just a job, but you have to be a certain kind of person to do this kind of work. And I think you probably have to have a thick skin or to, you know, have be tough on, on an exterior because you're dealing with so many different types of people. Um, When did you find like in the beginning of when you started up until now, what was your evolution? What did you find where you were then? And today, what have you acquired in terms of having that sort of strong character to, to deal in this business or in this, in this field? I think, you know, my first job out of grad school was um, I was the coordinator of a rape crisis program. And so I was working with sexual violence survivors, um, both from, you know, the distant past or the recent past and, um, you know, people who'd experienced 
intimate partner violence or stalking or assault or any other crime. And, and so those are really intense issues, right, to, to be on the other side of. But I think I was always grounded and I still find myself really grounded in the hope and the resilience mm -hmm. that people have within them. And I've seen that time and time again. And I, I think, you know, friends and family would say, like, what are you doing? And oh, my God, how do you do that? And how do you how do you sleep at night? And I say, you know, people are pretty incredible and mm -hmm. they have the ability to heal themselves and you know I am so grateful that I get to be part a little part of that journey I get to sort of bear witness to that change whatever it is whether it's trauma whether it's anxiety depression sort of life stressors grief um, eating disorders all of that stuff I get to be a little piece of that person's journey but really you know it's their journey so right. you know um, it's really it's really humbling to to sort of be on the other side of that Wow. And to be a victim and to have a disorder of some sort, I mean, how many people actually, you would never know that this is actually happening. Um, do you find a lot of cases like that? Yeah. I mean, I think just by, you know, the prevalence of trauma, um, you know, one in three women will be experience some sexual violence. One in six men will experience sexual violence. I think we're starting to finally understand how prevalent, you know, just that example is. In terms of mental health, I mean, I, I don't have a statistic on hand, but huge, huge amounts of numbers. I mean, I, I hear a third of people in this country struggle mm -hmm. with mental health issues in some capacity. And, you know, there's still so much stigma around it. Um, and I think, you know, in different parts of the country, certainly here in New York City or, you know, in sort of the tri-state area, at least a lot of us are sort of getting the message that it is okay and help is there. And, mm -hmm. you know, the people that do get help that, you know, it doesn't sort of go un undiagnosed and untreated, that mm -hmm. the outcome is so much better and people don't have to live with the pain of whatever that is. And I think you, you don't know by looking at someone what they're struggling with. Yeah. And, you know, which I guess brings us over to, um, you know, I, I created this podcast as a way to create a reference for actors so that actors could, you know, go through the different podcasts and find an episode that is something that could help them, you know, whether it's uh, the business of acting, whether it's the health of the actor, you know, because all these things are important to me. You know, I feel that if you are not confident or if you don't feel well inside or you're physically sick or you're looking for answers and solutions. Um, all that stuff is important to me. So I, I try to do my best to create a place in which folks can can get those resources. But here's a perfect example of a world in which people may never think that actors um, have issues, uh, mental issues or eating disorders or suffer from from many different things. And so I kind of want to dive into that a little bit because I'm sure there's an actor watching or someone who's interested in acting that may suffer from something that they don't feel comfortable sharing with the public or, or sharing with those that they love or even to just ask for help. Because I have people in my life that, you know, suffer from depression and you would never know it. But then once I knew about it and then talking with them and understanding what goes on inside them it's a really tough thing i mean there there's some days in which you know folks that i love can't can't even get can't leave their room just because they feel like it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. today just doesn't make sense so you know i really appreciate you being here because i feel like we can now provide a service for actors out there and 
some of the resources that Amy is going to be sharing with you guys today, um, all of this information is going to be available to you in the information box, whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to this on your favorite uh, podcast platform, the information will be there as well as um, if it's okay with you. I don't know if you want to share your information if folks have questions for you. Absolutely. Um, uh, Amy is based out in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. And so what part of New Jersey are you based in? So my office is in Montclair, New Jersey. Okay. Um, and it is right by the train, mm -hmm. um, accessible by bus and public transportation and, you know, lots of parking. That's awesome. That's re that's really good. I mean, you know, it's funny because we were talking earlier before we started recording and Amy was like, well, I'm in Jersey. I, I don't know if folks from New York are really going to come out. But what I did tell her was that a lot of actors have moved to New Jersey or there are a lot of actors that already are from Jersey that actually have to commute into the city to audition or to work. So uh, there are a lot of folks that could reach out to you. And the fact that there's parking available, that is a blessing because, <laughs> you know, to leave your house just to get on the train to go somewhere in New York City can be crazy. Um, but anyways, let's let's get into this for a second. Uh, you've ex you've worked with a lot of different types of actors of all levels, um, whether they're famous or starting out or they're you know, they're, they're constantly working. Uh, talk to me about some of the things that you've experienced that you've seen. Obviously, we're not going to share any names here because this, this is all confidential. But um, what have you seen in your line of work? Yeah, um, I have worked with actors and performers who struggle with anxiety, mm -hmm. um, you know, panic attacks, um, and may or may not be related to, you know, auditioning or performing or that actually oftentimes can be the outlet, right? Um, it could be the trigger. I was though. just thinking it could be the trigger. It could be the trigger. Yeah, because sometimes they'll give you the script and, and they'll say, are you available in an hour? Mm -hmm. um, I know that I've definitely gone through my thing where I'm like trying to figure out, oh, God, who's going to watch the kids while I run to do this? And depending on the person, some people are stronger and some people like they might get very overwhelmed yeah so. it's it's scary right so you know being asked to perform being asked to you know come up with something in five minutes and sort of be vulnerable and be there and and give yourself um can be really really anxiety provoking so i i've certainly worked with anxiety that sort of comes out because of that process um because of how critical it is i mean mm -hmm. it's a incredibly vulnerable critical field and I think, um, you know, I've seen that develop into depression, right? The negative thinking that you're sort of internalizing what, you know, directors or, you know, casting agents are, are telling you. Um, and then really, you know, sitting with that and, and sort of that becoming your own narrative. Mm. Um, or maybe that's already your narrative and it's being reinforced by, you know, people that you're performing for. Mm. If someone were going through that, if someone were, you know, because sometimes one, what an actor might consider to be a one bad experience, you know, I have this one student right now who she shared with me, she said, you know, I want to audition for certain types of roles, but because I got this commentary from one casting director about how they see me, I have a hard time seeing myself in these characters that I want to play. Mm. And so we worked for a little bit and and I showed her that that is one perspective. That's not everybody's perspective. That's not how everyone sees you. And so we actually filmed her playing a character. I guided her through it. When she watched it back, she was very happy with what she saw. And suddenly she believed for a second, you know, she or she believed that, hey, I can play that character. 
But in, in your line of work, in your experience, what do you feel could be the first steps of addressing that kind of anxiety and that kind of negative thinking? Like where could a person start if they're, if they're suffering? Well, I think, you know, in a professional setting, I would try to work with them to find out where it's rooted in, right? Mm -hmm. um, because most of the time it's not just about this particular moment. Um, again, that could be the trigger. So there could be certain tools, certain strategies, mm -hmm. um, certain, you know, techniques that I would give that person to be able to use in the moment to be able to, you know, sort of calm down, relax, manage to the best of their ability. But I think the long-term work is around where is it rooted in? Mm -hmm. What are sort of their negative core beliefs? What is their negative thinking about? Um, sometimes there's issues of identity and, um, you know, family of origin issues and all mm. sorts of things, right? So we, we need to look at the whole picture. And I think, you know, therapists who, who really aren't looking at the whole picture, mm -hmm. you know, there may not be long-term results for that person, long-term healing. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think, again, to sort of conceptualize the long-term going back to sort of their past, figuring out where where are these things where are these symptoms rooted in how do they mm -hmm. feel about themselves um, what did their relationship look like growing up and sort of with their family how has that um, influenced and impacted them because we know it does greatly and then you know are they engaging in these dynamics over and over again maybe even in the world of acting and, and sort of how their interactions with you know, directors or, you know, peers or teachers in the field are sort of giving them that same information again. And it's mm. reinforcing the, you know, whatever the symptoms are for that person. And then I think the other piece is really working with them on real time techniques to, you know, when people have big feelings, you know, different parts of the brain are really mm -hmm. involved in that, right? So you want to get yourself back in your thinking brain, which is your prefrontal cortex not to get too you know science is that what like people refer to as their third eye <laughs> maybe <laughs> i'm hitting you with like the other side of it. it's like well i have to keep it scientific <laughs> um i think it is <laughs> but yeah so your prefrontal cortex is here and your limbic system is sort of underneath in the back mm -hmm. and your limbic system is in charge of your emotion center so you know that's the part where all of a sudden if you see someone you know they're in an audition and all of a sudden they're frozen Mm. Their limbic system has taken over and oh, they wow. can't go into this part of the brain. So mm. they both can't be online or sort of like, you know, if you were to imagine them like lit up at the same time, like right now, you and I, we're in our prefrontal we're cortex, right here. Okay. you know, we're not sort of feeling big feelings that are, that are taking us off, you know, right. offline. Um, if you were to all of a sudden get triggered and all of a sudden, you know, I, I felt like I was talking to myself here. <laughs> You know, I might say, hey, is everything okay? what's going on? You what's start treating me during the interview. Yeah, that might happen. No, um, <laughs> I manage my triggers, though. I find that I manage the triggers, believe it or not. And I think you probably I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's what happens, right? Yeah. You learn to manage the triggers. Yep. And it's and, and, you know, I do believe that we're all capable of figuring out what they are and figuring out ways to adapt and to manage them and to lessen mm. them. Right. doesn't mean that you're going to walk through life and not have any. Right. Um, but you can't you can't do anything about them if you're not aware of what they are. That's a good point. And I love the thing you said earlier about, you know, sometimes like, for instance, when I was working with this student and we talked about what the thing could be, um, she's like, well, this one casting director, this was their perspective and it messed with me. But what you have said, it's interesting. It's like, that's fine, but there actually might be something a lot deeper that this moment has just reinforced that insecurity or that anxiety so that it just kind of opened the door further 
for this person to feel the way they do. Yeah. I mean, emotions and experiences are coded. They're, they're stored in our brain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't know, we might have an experience and you know, that's where you sometimes see someone, you know, their reaction doesn't seem to fit the experience. Right. And it Mm -hmm. can be very confusing for the person on the other side of that. And maybe even that individual themselves, but you look at sort of where, where is that coming from? What is that Mm -hmm. rooted in? And why is that popping out at that time? Have you had a lot of good success with your with your clients or what do you refer do you refer to people as clients patients clients clients do you find that you've had some really good successes and and what has been a big success without giving too much information that is really you know confirmed with you uh, that you know. I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm my, my work is good. Yeah. I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of, a lot of actors. Um, you know, I'm thinking of someone who had, who had, you know, pretty, pretty severe depression and Mm. some anxiety, um, some panic attacks that would, that would pop up and really acting was her outlet. And Mm -hmm. so she, you know, she was a very introverted person. Um, and she was a pretty depressed person Mm. and, you know, people that she worked with that saw her in that capacity did not, had no idea. I mean, they would have been shocked had they known sort of what was going on in in her head. Um, but you know, she was, she was always in her head. She was very much, you know, sort of always worrying about lots of different things, had a hard time turning off her thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know at times had trouble sort of like getting out of bed and and functioning but on the stage she was incredible so you know we worked a lot about um you know how what was sort of rooted in her depression and Mm -hmm. where was that you know and and it's not it's not easy it's a long process and i think through you know through the work that we did through the work that she did because Mm -hmm. it's really you know it was her journey right um i can only be there to support to support that and to sort of give some, some tactics and techniques and to guide them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, she did a lot of work and she made a lot of progress over the time that we worked together. And it felt, you know, she described once that she felt more integrated in on stage and off stage. And that was so important to her. Interesting. So it's, it's, it's like feeling like you understand your life or you're connected to your life when you're doing this type of work, you know, I, I had this experience recently where I was doing something and I felt to myself, I understand this work so well, so much that I couldn't even explain it to my wife or to my kids, the joy that I feel in the connection. But then once you leave it, you're back to your life. Mm-hmm. You're back to the realities and the anxieties or the insecurities and trying to understand other people and mm-hmm. things. And so I can, I can definitely relate to that a great deal. I think it's a really special thing that, you know, actors, performers have, right? Mm -hmm. It is, it's such a connection. It's such a, it's something that is, like you said, kind of indescribable Mm -hmm. um, about, you know, sort of getting into someone else's brain and character and sort of being that person, right? It's not them. So, you know, you can't know what actors or a character is going through because it's not about them. It's about the individual underneath that. Right. Um, but you know, something else that is really, really comes up a lot within the performers that I see, um, are a lot of eating and body image issues. Mm. And I think that is really, really challenging because of the field and what people are requiring and the criticism and, um, you know, so that's something else that is one of the things I specialize in is Mm -hmm. sort of working with folks around, um, how they feel in their body, their, you know, sort of presentation, um, 
and really their relationship to food and what that sort of means for them. Um, because it's a huge, huge issue, um, mm-hmm. disordered eating, eating disorders, um, in, in terms of how isolating it can feel. Sure. Um, it's interesting because as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, <laughs> you start thinking about yourself. I'm sitting here diagnosing myself and I go, yeah, yeah, I have. It's funny because like when I think about me and, and maybe this will be a session, but I, you can send me an invoice. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the body issues sometimes that come up, you know, that over time, you know, you accept yourself and then that's the kind of work that you do on, on you. Um, but in the beginning, it's like, uh, man, you know, I, I don't have the type of body that that actor has. So maybe I'm not getting that kind of work. But then it's interesting because there's some actors that will do whatever they have to do to either keep the weight, like they were casted in a project and they need to keep that weight or they need to lose weight and they're able to do it. And sometimes they may go a little too far Mm. where it's no longer healthy. Because I recently worked on a project where one of the actors was sharing with me that they had went to the doctor during the process of filming that project. And the doctor clearly told them, you're now beneath like healthy weight. Mm-hmm. You've gone too far. But that actor didn't know how to come back. They just stayed in this mode that they figured that would work. In my case, I love food. I love food. And food, for sure, I know, comforts me and makes me feel so good inside <laughs> as I'm eating it. And when I think of the audition, if there's any kind of anxiety, my best friend might be food. So that's like the other side of it. It is, Well, it is the other side. Right. It's sort of the, the more extreme way, right? Because mm-hmm. we think about, you know, restricting your food intake and that might be necessary if someone is, you know, needs to be a certain weight for a certain part. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it can get, it can get really, really slippery if people are, you know, not necessarily healthy sort of emotionally because mm-hmm. really underneath eating disorders or even disordered eating are really emotional disorders. That is what's driving it. So right. you might have some some depression, some maybe OCD, some anxiety, something like that, trauma, um, and really, you know, and then there's this restricting um, or there's purging, right? There could mm-hmm. be purging behaviors, which could be, um, you know, making yourself throw up or mm-hmm. over-exercising is actually a type of purging that sometimes right. we don't even think about, mm-hmm. um, using diet pills or diuretics. And then there's binging, right, sort mm-hmm. of, And all of those things, people can do those behaviors or use them in minor ways. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you have an eating disorder, but it's sort of the extreme of that, right? Right. If you're binging on, you know, you're restricting all day and then you're binging on food all night long, right? Right. Um, And the shame and the, you know, um, the isolation around that can be extremely Mm -hmm. concerning. Um, But eating disorders can come on real quick. And, you know, so if you're thinking about someone who is starting to use some of those behaviors, like a lot of restricting or any of the other ones, and then they also have a lot of body image issues, they're just Mm -hmm. feeling so uncomfortable in their body, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope and they can escalate quickly. It's one of the most medically complicated, um, highest risk of mortality rate of any mental health issue is an eating Mm -hmm. disorder. Um, so, you know, there's, it, it can be very concerning. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we don't see the subtleties of those, but they are unfortunately so prevalent in mm. the actor community. Um, and it's, it's tricky, right? Because if you're working as an actor and you need to look a certain way or you're being pressured or you're being criticized, mm-hmm. you know, there isn't, there isn't always room to sort of go into full recovery for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be, 
you know, it can be sort of a, a job issue, right? If you're, if this is your job and you right. need to look a certain way and how you get there, you know, they don't necessarily care. They just need you to get there. They need you to produce it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it can be really, really emotionally draining and concerning. Yeah. With this particular line of work, when you first started tackling these issues in your work, um, was there one way that you approached it? And then was there a shift in your work where you said, you know, this is kind of by the book, but I have to step out and I have to find a way to communicate with the people. Um, was there one method that you used to follow and then suddenly you saw something different and that changed your work? Talk to me well, about that. I think with eating disorder treatment, um, and I, I previously was the director at the Renfrew Center of New York, where we work with, you know, people with eating disorders and pretty, mm. you know, pretty severe eating disorders at that level. And, you know, we did work with a lot, we do work with a lot of actors and performers and mm. sort of, you know, dancers and, and athletes, you know, and again, it's really tricky because there's a lot of medical complications and sometimes it is a field where you have to be kind of strict with how you're guiding people towards recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a part of it that you also want to be flexible. So I think that's the piece of it that, you know, from person to person based on their own individual experience, right. you know, you know, you need to work with the person and you need to meet them where they are. Um, gotcha. because not everyone is ready for, you know, full on recovery or recovery doesn't look the same for every person, you know, with, with mental health issues or eating disorders or any of those things. And, you know, so I think as a, as a clinician myself, I think I, I, you know, sometimes you, you get stuck in the rigidity of it too, mm -hmm. um, because you sort of have that knowledge of how scary things can progress. Mm -hmm. But I think the flexibility of, um, really working with that person and seeing sort of where they can go mm -hmm. um, really clicked for me. That's and I great. Think it's the, it's, you know, it's the way you have to do the work. That's really great that uh, you keep yourself flexible because everybody requires something different mm -hmm. or at least a different approach to give them the information or the resources that they need. Um, is there, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there hope? Like if I suffer with anxiety, if I have an eating disorder, is there a solution for me? Absolutely. I'm, I think, you know, and I said that at the beginning that I think what really keeps me in this work and what keeps me grounded in this work is that there is so much hope. There is so much resilience. Mm -hmm. um, and even if, you know, even if people are struggling now and they get better and then they have a hiccup later down the road, you know, there is still hope. And they mm -hmm. can sort of get back to that place and, and to, you know, that people really need to be more compassionate with themselves. Mm -hmm. um, because I know sometimes, you know, the people around us, our support, our support system sometimes isn't as forgiving or isn't as, you know, compassionate, but we need to do that for ourselves. And I think as like, you <laughs> yeah. know, just humans, we are bad at that. We're just not good at being, you know, kind to ourselves. And so, you know, mm -hmm. that's really what I think we need more kindness to ourselves and also to each other. We are, we are. I mean, growing up, I, I don't know what it was like for you as a kid, but if you, it were two extremes. If you were skinny, or, okay, if you had some meat on your bones and then you suddenly got very slim because maybe, you know, you just got slimmer, you worked out, you decided to live a healthy life. Then somebody may say, what's wrong with you? Are you dying? You sick? And you're like, why I gotta be sick? Why can't just be healthy? Or like if you gain weight, it was easy for like friends and family in where I grew up to say, oh, my God, you're fat, you know. And it's like, oh, God, 
So, um, there's so much commentary on our appearance, (laughs) right? And, you know, I really, I talk to people and I talk to my kids too. Um, you know, we don't need to be commenting on people's bodies. It's just not appropriate. And, you know, and I think, you know, it makes me think of, you know, what, what actors have to sort of go through and live through because their bodies are, their appearance are commented on and criticized all the time, picked apart, um, you know, in the media, there's like an obsession like they pick apart the person down to like the the threading in their clothing Mm -hmm. or just anything and everything the choice of haircut the choice of you know makeup I mean just anything 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 and we're so we're so obsessed in this country with Mm -hmm. with people and you know there are some folks that say and I'd love to hear your opinion on this um, about social media some people claim that social media has also contributed to how people feel. But I'm not entirely sure if if that's right or wrong. You know, is it still always just the person who could allow these things to harm them? Or is it, you know, people being, like we were saying, like, you know, the commentary. Mm-hmm. And maybe you go in, you open up a social media account, let's just say, and you're confident, you feel good about yourself, but people's commentary on how you live your life or what you look like, could that create a disorder inside or a mental illness yeah. of some sort? You know, so, so what do you think? Do you think social media contributes to that or is it on the person? I do. I a hundred percent do. I think especially with, you know, disordered eating and body image issues, things like that. I think, you know, the platforms for commentary are just enormous. Yeah. Um, so I do think that, you know, I wouldn't say that it causes eating disorders, mm-hmm. but I think that it can be a reason that they continue, right? So I think even what you were saying before, where About reinforcing, reinforcing Got exactly, it. or someone looks at someone and says, "Oh, your body looks this way. Great job, right?" We're getting you're getting positive feedback about mm-hmm. thinness. You're getting negative feedback about you know being fatter, being larger bodied, mm-hmm. and it's really harmful. It's really harmful. So you know, again, I think it's people's choice to put their stuff out there. Of course, sure. Um, and also, I wish people were just kinder. Yeah. You know, in terms of what they what they feel like they can share or should share. Um, it's tricky. It's very tricky. But I do think that it can, you know, it can contribute to eating disorders, to depression, to all of the sort of stuff that goes on inside people. And it depends on the individual, right? It depends on sort of their their own um, confidence levels and sort of what that how they take that in. Right. Sure. Now, folks, you know, I'm, I, I thank you so much again for, for being here today because everything that you've shared is so important, is so great to think about, and it's nice to feel like you are not alone. The folks out there listening, there is someone here who not only knows their work and does it well, but they're also flexible, and everything is based on a person-to-person basis. Um, if folks are looking for help, right, they're looking to address some of these things that are happening inside where could they go for some of these resources? And of course, including yourself, because, you know, you, you service your community out in New Jersey and, um, and folks who also in the tri-state area who come to you, um, where could, where could they go to, to begin this work? Yeah. I mean, I would love to, you know, sort of put my, myself out there as a resource. Um, certainly I have an office in Montclair, um, and folks can reach out to me. I have a website and I think you'll post all of that stuff. It's going to be all in the information box. What's your website and what's your email address that we'll share with them on, on the podcast and the camera. And of course, 
anything we're talking about in terms of resources will be available right underneath or next to. Yeah, my website is amyetherapy.com. And my email is amyetherapy at gmail.com. That's perfect. Very easy. Very easy to remember. It's not hard at all. I like that. Simplicity is best because, you know, you present, if it was a complicated email address, I'm sure it was, I was like, okay, let me just pause this for a second. Let me go get a pen and paper. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> folks can remember. Um, and I think some other resources that are that are really important, um, the Renfrew Center does incredible work. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I used to work there. I still work with them. I am a huge fan. They are the leading experts in treating eating disorders in the country, and they have um, locations, you know, close to here in New York City, and then they Great. have a couple of locations in New Jersey. And so that's RenfrewCenter.com, or their number is one eight hundred Renfrew. That's great. Simple again. Yeah. It's very nice. And one other um, one other resource that is also really great is the Maria Drost Counseling Center. Um, and they're also, um, you know, around here in the East 30s. Um, Dr. Natalie Medina Minton is the executive director, and they also work a lot with performers and actors. Um, and they do that um, also offer sliding scale options for people who have, you know, low finances. Oh, Medina Medina is a name that's in my family. Okay. Maybe we're related. Who knows? <laughs> I'll have to get her on the show. <laughs> um, well, Amy, really nice to have you. Um, I think, I mean, aside from the work that you do, I mean, you're such a beautiful person. You're such a beautiful family and your friendship and your family love over the years. I mean, you know, I just, I consider you to be one of my great friends. Yes, you too. And thank you for doing this because this is, you know, it's something that is still so, there's still so much stigma and secrecy around mm-hmm. mental health issues. And I think, you know, especially for me being a performer and actor um, and not having really that be my main job, that still is, you know, that's my heart is there. And mm-hmm. I know how so many people are struggling in silence and they don't have to. And so I really appreciate you doing something like this to get the word out there. Uh, it was my pleasure. Well, thank you. All right, folks. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was a wonderful episode. I love when I get a chance to hang out with my friends. So it's amyetherapy at gmail.com and amyetherapy.com. Fantastic, folks. Well, stay tuned. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And uh, if you love our podcast, encourage your friends and family to definitely subscribe as well. This is Victor Cruz with the Victor Cruz Acting Studio Podcast, and I will see you real soon.